1: This is part three of a three-part interview with Brian D. Palmer about the emergence of Trotskyism in the United States.
0: In chapter five, you discuss the CLA's attempts at party building in the United States. But before getting to that, it's important to understand the international context as Trotskyists across Europe wrestled with the increasingly apparent degeneration in an Emanating from Moscow, as well as the rising tide of fascism. This led to what is often called the French turn, where Trotsky turned towards the French Socialist Party. Could you set the scene in Europe for us and explain this new approach Trotskyists were attempting?
1: Yeah, I might backtrack a bit there, because I'm not sure we covered it earlier, because a central you know, a central development. In the, in, the, in the international Trotskyist movement and also in the United States was the uh, movement away from uh, seeing Trotskyism at, and, and its organizations as an external tendency to the Communist Party. Um, the break from that approach occurred in 1933-34 with Trotsky's realization that uh, the Communist Party was no longer, uh, a revolutionary vanguard that, uh, in fact, the communist international had so squandered its, uh, capacities to be that revolutionary potential with its failure to, uh, function, uh, in a way that would challenge the rise of Hitler and, and fascism, uh, in Europe. Um, and so because. The Communist Party, in its sectarian third period, had refused to make united Front common cause with other left wing organizations in the battle against the rise of fascism and the drift to war uh, Canon uh, pardon me Trotsky and Canon uh, both uh, came to the appropriate conclusion that it was necessary to break from their restrictions as an external tendency and move into the wider um, uh, sort of political uh, um, uh, context of being part of a mass movement. Now to be part of that mass movement then in uh, 1934, 35, uh, inevitably meant uh, sort of building uh, um, distinct uh, um, political mobilizations against uh, not only fascism and war, but also in opposition to the program and practice of the communist parties and the Comintern. And those parties uh, and practices in 1935 also shifted gears dramatically in the sense that they moved away from the third period sectarianism of creating red unions, uh, Everybody else was a social fascist, uh, the need to uh, um, uh, sort of build wider mobilizations. Um, this, the Communist Party interpreted, and and pardon me, the Comintern interpreted and under Stalin's direction as a move into popular front kind of cross-class politics. Now, the way that manifested itself in Europe was that there was increasing uh, um, uh, uh, attempts to Uh, basically um, submerge the politics of revolutionary communism and align with uh, other groups, including reformist groups, but also even uh, um, uh, 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 progressive bourgeois parties that opposed um, the rise of Hitler. What Trotsky saw was that what was needed was for... uh, um, there to be an, a, an attempt to move into uh, closer united front work with uh, um, socialist parties and to stop a drift to what he thought would be the uh, sort of alignment of communist and socialist parties in a, in a broad reformist uh, coalition. And because, While that was the the direction that the leaderships of those parties would have favored, there were also, given the drift to war, the rise of fascism, the ongoing capitalist crisis of the depression, more and more workers were wanting militancy and more and more radical youth were moving into sort of revolutionary political uh, um, um, activity. So... Trotsky thought that the very small and often fractured and quite weak and ineffective uh, movements of the left opposition in uh, Europe, and particularly in France, where the Socialist Party and the Communist Party were very large, that there was a possibility of uh, Trotskyists entering into the Socialist Party, both to uh, create the possibility of working with revolutionizing and radicalizing youth and workers who are gravitating towards socialist socialist politics, and to uh, basically uh, thwart a, a sort of reformist coming together under the popular front of uh, communists and socialists. So this was uh, uh, this kind of bold move and was uh, called entry, uh, and, and the, the Trotskyist forces would enter into the Socialist Party
0: And this was known as the French turn. Back in the United States, Cannon followed these developments in France closely, seeing this entryism as a tactic with much potential for American Trotskyism which he was hoping to break out of its relatively marginal position and put it center stage. However, there were some intense debates around the tactic, a key term for many being organic unity. So could you tell us what was organic unity and what were some of the key positions in these debates around it?
1: Well, organic unity was the position that that was developed by essentially by the Communist Party. To suggest that uh, there could be, uh, um, in the Popular Front era, uh, a unity of, of socialists and communists, long-standing, uh, in, in some senses, uh, antagonists on the left, um, but that with the with the need to, you know, create in the in the common turn's perspective, this uh, uh, broad popular front of all of those to the to the sort of left of Hitler, um, there was a need to, uh, um, the, the, the Comintern thought that this, there was an intrinsic organic unity between socialists and communists that could be achieved. Um, if this had been, have had been realized, Trotsky understood that it probably would have set the revolutionary movement back decades um, because of a combination Uh, an organic unity of communists and socialists under the leadership of the communist international and the reformist elements within the leadership of the socialist parties, it would have foreclosed the possibility that revolutionary Trotskyists could have had any impact in the trade unions or in uh, various social movements or in the the sort of politics of left-wing alternatives. So uh, a, a, a kind of this organic, organic unity, while it sounds on the face of it to be, uh, you know, have a positive connotations, really would have given that it would have been constituted on the basis of a, of a kind of a barren marriage of two uh, um, uh, uh, um, political formations, moving in the wrong directions as far as any kind of revolutionary possibilities were concerned. Uh, it had to be uh, thwarted, and uh, the one way to do that was also to in- expand the possibilities uh, for Trotskyists to work closely with and recruit to revolutionary politics elements of the radicalizing uh, and and increasingly militant uh, um, workers' movements and 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 youth mobilizations that were happening in uh, you know thirty five thirty six.
0: One of the first groups Canon would turn to was the American Workers Party, formed in nineteen thirty three around A. J. Musta, a Christian pacifist turned revolutionary. While discussions would drag on for a time, in December 1934, a fusion was made complete in the form of the Workers' Party. Could you tell us about Musta and his party and how he and Cannon both came towards seeing fusion as the best option for furthering class struggle?
1: Yeah. um A.J. Musty was, was, as I think I've said earlier, a a radical pacifist uh, preacher from the World War I years. Over the course of the 1920s, he moved through his uh, work at the Brookwood Labor College into closer and closer alliances with the trade union left, uh, including a number of left-wing figures in the American Federation of Labor. Um, He had dealings with communists, and communists were often invited to to Brookwood Labor College to give lectures and, and teach courses. Um, but he increasingly moved away from the Communist Party uh, and its politics. And in the, with the Great Depression, uh, he moved into more and more radical uh, and indeed revolutionary uh, um, um, politics and perspectives. And he led the way in the formation of the American Workers' Party which uh, emerged uh, a little later than the Communist League of America, but was uh, on the scene by 1933, 34 uh, in the class struggles and played a particularly prominent role in organizing unemployed workers as well. Uh, And of course, the Toledo auto strike, uh, which occurred at almost the same time as the Minneapolis trucker strikes, uh, it did uh, sort of raise the banner of, uh, um, you know, the revolutionary left and the role that it could play in organizing uh, uh, industrial workers, in particular in the AFL unions. So Toledo and Minneapolis were corresponding struggles that in some senses moved uh, the memberships and the leaderships of the Trotskyist Communist League of America and the Mustyite uh, American Workers Party closer and closer together. Um, Where these groups differed was that the Mustyites always considered themselves far more of an American uh, political formation rather than part of an international uh, movement. But there was congruence and some like Musty read more and more Trotsky and moved more and more out of their old kind of frameworks and into ways of thinking and perceiving uh, the world that uh, uh, were congruent with those of Canon and the Communist League of America. So after uh, the struggles of Minneapolis and Toledo uh, put these two fairly small uh, left-wing workers organizations uh, uh, before the public, uh, there was discussion of aligning with one another. neither 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 one of them thought, for instance, that the Communist Party, Uh, held the answers for for the revolutionary movement. Uh, And while there there were differences among the membership and leadership of the American Workers' Party and the Communist League of America, particularly around uh, the question of the Russian Revolution and Stalinization, uh, oddly, the American Workers' Party, which hadn't looked as closely at these international developments, as had Cannon and his comrades, thought that Russia still deserved uh, perhaps more support than Cannon and company and Trotskyists internationally were willing to give them. So there was a push for uh, a coming together of this of these two organizations. But Cannon uh, and the CLA also wanted to push. Musty and his followers into uh, a more uh, international perspective and less into what they felt was a kind of American uh, uh, chauvinism, American exceptionalism uh, kind of orientation. And that indeed would be part and parcel of the discussions that led eventually to the fusion Of these two organizations. Um, And in the process of that fusion, uh, there were those in the CLA who were less enamored of the prospects of fusion than were Cannon, Shackman, and others. Uh, Hugo Oler was one of these who thought that there were maybe problems with the Mustier group that needed to be ironed out before such a fusion should take place. But Oler was eventually won over, and the fusion did take place. And for a time, it resulted in very close relations and connections. They spoke together on national speaking tours of Musty and Cannon, who were the two uh, sort of leaders of the of these of the of these groups. Um, but uh, as they formed, uh, and and they created a, an organization known as the Workers Party. Um, this uh, Workers Party did, uh, you know, bear the f- the the fruit of pushing the old American Workers Party elements closer and closer towards Trotskyism, and there were a number of very talented uh, young organizers in the in Musty's group that uh, gravitated uh, instinctually almost towards Cannon and his politics, and indeed. Uh, Musty would eventually leave uh, the, the revolutionary movement to go back to the church after some disappointing discussions with Trotsky in Europe in 1935, um, uh, 36, I believe. Um, but his, many of his followers uh, proved to be, um, you know, won over to Trotskyism and would be stalwart advocates of canon and work closely with him uh, over the next decades.
0: One of the first things you document this new party doing was attempting to establish connections among African Americans, particularly in Harlem. To do this, they sent in Simon Williamson, a Black CLA member from Kansas City, to establish connections, although the results were heavily mixed, fitting into a long history you describe of attempts to integrate questions of race into the American class struggle. Could you tell us a bit about what happened in Harlem?
1: yeah, this was a, uh, um, a recognition on the part of the fused American Workers Party and the Communist League of America and their resulting organization, the Workers Party, that once again, they had to address race more seriously as a fundamental uh, question for the you know that the revolutionary movement in the. US uh, you know, had to confront. Uh, and in, in this period of the mid 1930s, Um, the the Communist Party had a stranglehold over uh, an increasingly vocal and volatile uh, um, African-American movement of uh, grievance and discontent uh, in places like Harlem. Um, There were, uh, um, you know, riots and protests uh, in this period. And the Communist Party really had a um, uh, really controlled much of the revolutionary left's activity within uh, Black Harlem in this period. Um, Williamson, who was uh, a uh, longstanding member in the Communist League of America and had worked closely with Cannon's, uh, one of Cannon's leading organizers, Hugo Oler, who came from, from, from there, uh, was brought to New York and given assurances that he would be set up in Harlem and given support to try to organize a presence for Trotskyism and the Workers Party uh, in this major mecca of uh, you know African American uh, um, uh, experience in the U.S., um, and Williamson was uh, you know wrote a number of articles uh, in the in the Militant. Uh, outlining black history and also was uh, vocal in challenging uh, the Communist Party's Black Belt Nation thesis and arguing for the Trotskyist uh, perspective of revolutionary uh, integration and equality um, uh, and, and seeing the struggle of Black Americans uh, as a struggle, as a class struggle. Uh, primarily that the vast majority of black Americans were, uh, workers, uh, and needed to be, you know, needed needed to have behind them the politics of class struggle in order to secure, uh, their civil rights, uh, within, uh, bourgeois America. Um, Williamson, however, you know, he, he had a great deal of difficulty in transcending the Communist Party's stranglehold over Black Harlem and protest struggles there. Um, he had difficulty making inroads uh, uh, into the Black uh, community. And uh, he claimed uh, that he was given too little uh, material support and that the, uh, um, uh, the on-the-ground uh, local of the old Communist labor Uh, League of America uh, forces in Harlem which was essentially a German speaking local um, really didn't uh, give him the support uh, that was required uh, and needed Um, the problem here (laughs) is that that may well have been true but the real difficulty came because this Williamson's moment in Harlem and, and, and the support of the Workers' Party for it coincided with uh, what was really the French turn in America and entry into the Socialist Party. And this was opposed vigorously. We'll talk about this in more detail, I suspect, in a minute, by Hugo Oler, who was the key, a, a key kind of factional figure and ally with Williamson. Um So with Oler rejecting the entry into the Socialist Party, Williamson, I expect, went along with that politics and found himself more and more on the outs with the leadership of the, of, of the Workers Party as they decided uh, to as it decided to enter into the Socialist Party. And when Oler made his exit then from, the uh, you know and refused to enter into the into the uh, socialist party. Williamson went with him, uh, and Oler's group that then formed uh, did not, in fact, last all that much longer. It split. Williamson returned to Kansas City, and a vibrant and powerful voice for Black Trotskyism was sadly lost. So it's a complicated mix of you know the timing that Williamson was there, the usual problems that confront you know a largely white movement, and its its attempts to intersect with with you know black mobilizations, and the extent to which the Communist Party really did have a much larger presence in an historic relationship with uh, not only Harlem, but you know, Black American struggles uh,
0: in the U.S. in the 30s. The Socialist Party, led by Norman Thomas, would seem to be an odd choice for revolutionaries like Cannon to decide to get involved. But for some time, Cannon and his comrades had been eyeing it since they suspected that, in spite of its formal tendency towards reformism, there was a militant consciousness developing among the rank and file membership, which would create fissures and tensions Cannon felt could be productively exploited. Could you tell us about the Socialist Party at this time and where Cannon saw potential for political openings?
1: Yeah, the, the Socialist Party of, of the thirties um, uh, was in some senses uh, both a, uh, a prime possibility, for recruitment for Trotskyists and a political formation in the throes of uh, in some disillusion. It was never in the 30s as strong as it had been under Eugene Debs' leadership in the World War I era. Um, but in the 1930s, uh, I think in the first presidential election, 1932. I think Thomas could command something like eight hundred eighty-five thousand presidential votes by uh, late by nineteen thirty-six. That presidential vote tally had lessened considerably, uh, and was now measured at possibly about a quarter of what it had been uh, four years earlier. There were areas, regions in the Socialist Party where by 1935, 36, like California, that Cannon described as basically moribund. But it was still a mass party. It still had uh, a, a presence in the, uh, on, the political, on the political spectrum. And it uh, was an alternative in the eyes of many radicalizing youth and militant workers to a communist party that they simply could not gravitate towards, although the CP was growing as well in this period. So, you know, to the Trotskyists, and after their fusion with the, with the American Workers' Party, the Socialist Party seemed to be a milieu that they could enter into and come into working relationships with, 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 with workers and youth who were in the throes of revolutionizing themselves. Um, and so for that reason, it seemed a, a, a ripe as, a, as an opportunity. There were, it, it needs to be said as well, factions within the Socialist Party. And as the canon grouping was trying to enter into it, this was what they were trying to size up. There was an old guard that was right wing and that was uh, sort of cast in the mold of what might be called gas and water socialism very modest, uh, program of sort of nationalizing certain public utilities, a fairly conservative and certainly deeply anti-communist, uh, um, element. There was as well, uh, a, uh, um, a cohort of leading elements of which Norman Thomas was, Uh, The figurehead, but uh, of which uh, a series of other local leaders, Paul Porter in Wisconsin and Jack Altman in New York City, uh, were known as the militants. Uh, They were more left-wing. They had battled the old guard incessantly over the course of the 1930s. And there were Clots of left-wing possibility, some of which were organized into a group, into groups called one of which was called the Revolutionary uh, Revolutionary Policy Group, um, who had ties. It was thought to the Lovestoneites and the Communist Party. So some of these contingents, organized contingents, as well as The more amorphous rank and file radicalizing element were what attracted uh, Cannon, Shackman, and others to enter into the Socialist Party. The question was, how would that entry actually be conducted and undertaken?
0: Yeah, picking up something you were alluding to earlier, the turn towards the Socialist Party would lead to a new form of factionalism. While Cannon would eventually win out, it was only after much bitter debate with several others, particularly Hugo Euler, who would eventually leave and take several other comrades with him. Could you tell us about these debates and how Cannon eventually managed to persuade most, but not all, of his comrades about the value of turning towards the Socialist Party?
1: Yeah, Hugo Oller was, uh, of all the Communist League of America um, leading contingent, the least enamored of fusion with the Mustyite American Workers' Party. Um, And he voiced fears uh, in that fusion process that Musty and his followers were insufficiently uh, revolutionary and that the uh, Communist League of America, as Trotskyists, would find themselves there and their politics watered down by a fusion with the Mustyites. The the term that was used was this would be a kind of liquidation of the program of the of of the Communist League of America. But uh, Oler was won over to the fusion, and he went along with it. Um, uh, He drew the line, however, at entering into the Socialist Party. He thought this was liquidationist. He thought this was a destruction of the Trotskyist uh, um, uh, sort of revolutionary politics, and he opposed it. Uh, And uh, in the debates, uh, which became quite acrimonious and confrontations that followed, Ohler and Tom Stamm, who was another leading figure who had aligned with, Con- with Con- Cannon throughout the 1930s broke, uh, decisively, uh, and in fact left, uh, the American, pardon me, the workers party, um, refusing to, to, you know, uh, enter into the socialist party. Um, musty, uh, had never wanted to enter the Socialist Party, the leader of the American Workers' Party. He'd gone along with the fusion, but he'd always said that he feared that Cannon, Shackman, and others were engineering this, an entry into the Socialist Party. Um, this wasn't really what had happened, uh, but things were moving very quickly for the Trotskyists in this period, and decisions had to be made. And in the end, uh, um, Musty did uh, leave the movement Um, before, uh, um, uh, you know, slightly after the the entry had taken place. Um, So there were were people like that who went by the wayside. But on the whole, and certainly with Trotsky's enthusiastic backing internationally, Cannon, Shackman, uh, and others were able to convince uh, the broad uh, numbers of the uh, American Workers Party, worker and the uh, CLA fusion, that entry provided them with opportunities that they could not pass by, and that it was necessary for them to move into the uh, Socialist Workers Party, both to get more of a mass contact with radi- revolutionizing and radicalizing workers and youth. Uh, and to thwart uh, this uh, pitch for organic unity that, for instance, Earl Browder, the head of the CP, was making towards um, uh, Norman Thomas and the Socialist Party. Browder actually had engaged in a, in a public debate with uh, Thomas and was, uh, you know, brokering the possibility of a, a joint uh, ticket Uh, in in sort of electoral campaigns. And another feature that uh, Cannon and company thought needed to be addressed with an entry was winning over uh, the Revolutionary Policy Committee, which had ties to Lovestone, to an actual politics of revolutionary Trotskyism rather than Lovestone's politics, uh, which were uh, sort of increasingly... uh, um, uh, you know, uh, um, aligning with the uh, with the with the politics of the common turn and sort of refusing to address what Cannon, Trotsky, and others thought were major considerations.
0: An American French turn was announced in a June one thousand, nine hundred and thirty-six issue of New Militant, with a headline proclaiming: "Workers Party calls all revolutionary workers to join the Socialist Party." While some sacrifices, such as their independent press, were given up, Cannon and his comrades were determined to make the most of their newfound position, although how best to do this was still a key question. On the one hand, some felt that setting up a Trotskyist or revolutionary caucus within the Socialist Party was the best way to get revolutionary ideas into the party, while Cannon at this time traveling abroad and digging into organizing in California felt a turn to mass work was the best route. Could you tell us a bit about what Cannon was doing in California at the time and why he felt this turn towards engaging the rank and file was the best way to develop revolutionary roots in the party?
1: Yeah, before we get to California, I might just backtrack a bit. Um, The French turn in America and the entry into the Socialist Party, it needs to be understood there was no blueprint for how to do this. Um, the French experience, uh, you know, in Europe had not been particularly uh, successful, and it wasn't really clear how best to kind of enter into a into a into a into a party like the Socialist Party, um, and because of the factionalized nature of the American party, with its old guard right wing, its militants. Uh, and it's and and smaller you know factions like the Revolutionary Policy Committee. The question always was how does one uh, enter into the party? The Socialist Party that wanted uh, uh, to to uh, facilitate this entry was clearly the the the, poli- the 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 group outside of the hardcore uh, old guard right wing. They wanted nothing to do with. Cannon and Company, entering uh, their ranks. And in fact, uh, they would depart the Socialist Party uh, as this was, you know, happening. The question then became, uh, how does one orient towards the militants within the Socialist Party? And Cannon and others in the New York leadership of uh, the, 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 they called themselves now Uh, um, uh, you know, a a kind of committee. They couldn't, they were not allowed to enter into the party as a faction. Their press was dispensed with, they had to uh, basically agree not to meet, which they, you know, violated that agreement. Um, And they had to uh, basically function as individuals, none of whom were given organizers' posts or any position in the party. So in negotiating their entry, it was quite clear to Cannon and Shackman that the Socialist Party had basically struck a very tough deal with them. and giving up their press was a major, major issue, especially since the Socialist Party had always operated on the basis that any faction within it could have its own press. They made the exception for uh, um, the, uh, the Trotskyists. Uh, in the beginning, Cannon and Shackman and, and those in New York conducting the negotiations originally thought That they would be aligning themselves with the militants uh, and becoming almost, doing almost a double entry of entering the militant faction of the Socialist Party as well as the Socialist Party as a whole. Um, The problem was that as the right wing exited the Socialist Party, the militants gravitated not to the left and to Trotskyism, but more and more to the right and more and more to the Communist Party as well, uh, which in its popular frontist kind of organic unity phase was in fact embracing uh, fairly right-wing political positions within the gambit of what socialists and communists were about. Um, So Cannon, in order to, uh, because of personal reasons because he was involved in a whole series of discussions with things that were going on in Minneapolis, and because he wanted a break from New York, which he often felt he needed in the midst of various factional struggles, which he'd just been through a number of them in the early to mid-1930s, left for California. And it was in California that Cannon developed a uniquely... And certainly, different perspective than all of his comrades in New York about how to conduct the entry in New York. Shackman, uh, um, James Burnham, who was now a leading figure, who was a a New York philosopher, who had joined, uh, who had aligned with the Trotskyists after the fusion. He had been a member of the American Workers Party. Uh, even Cannon's old, old one of all, Cannon's oldest and working-class comrades in the movement, Arnie Swabeck, all of them thought that the orientation of the entry should be to uh, develop working relations with the militants, with this organized group led by Jack Altman uh, in New York City, but having you know sections throughout the United States. As Cannon got to California he developed a perspective that was entirely different. He knew that the militants would ultimately turn on the on the Trotskyist entryists. He knew that they would move to expel them. He knew that they were developing closer and closer ties with the Communist Party. He knew that they were not willing to, for instance, tell the truth about the struggle in Spain where the Communist Party was in, in, in effect sabotaging Trotskyist inflected groups like the PUM or anarchists who were, uh, these two groups were the leading militant and military kind of uh, combatants against Franco. And the communists were moving against them in order to assert their own control over developments in Spain. Uh, he knew that they would not uh, accept criticisms of the Soviet Union that were emerging out of the issues of the Moscow trials uh, you know, in Russia. Uh, and he knew that uh, ultimately what needed to be done, if one was going to actually get the benefits from entry of recruiting, radicalizing uh, and revolutionizing workers and youth and those elements within the Socialist Party that were gravitating towards a more revolutionary perspective, what was needed was to actually build the Socialist Party, work in united front you know, ways inside the party. With various revolutionary, uh, 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 those sympathy, sympathetic to revolutionary politics, and to show those kinds of people that Trotskyists had the capacity to do the work that would create a socialist party that was actually a fighting revolutionary party, which is what these people wanted. So what Cannon did was he went out to the West Coast. He spoke at any number of socialist party. Uh, forums. He he s- took to the you know electoral stumps in in support of Norman Thomas's electoral campaign uh, in 1936. Uh, he developed close ties with uh, a uh, militant uh, union on the west coast, the uh, the Pacific uh, Siemens Union. Uh, he set up an, an agitational newspaper. Uh, the the uh, labor action. And he worked closely with uh, a leading and revolutionizing uh, socialist party figure named Glenn Trimble. And he came close, Canon, on the part of the Trotskyists to taking over the socialist party in California. Meanwhile, in New York, Shackman and company were having endless discussions with the militants, but not engaging in the actual kind of on-the-ground building of revolutionary possibility within the Socialist Party that Cannon was doing on the West Coast. This created an immense uh, um, tension within the old Trotskyist uh, leadership. Back and forth letters, acrimonious, hostile. Um, But in the end, as Cannon's politics on the West Coast developed and as it became apparent more and more that the militants in the in the Socialist Party were basically moving eventually to expel all the Trotskyists, to deny them the right to talk about the Moscow trials, for instance, uh, to refuse uh, to see the very very apparent writing on the wall of where uh, you know the, the Communist Party was sabotaging the revolutionary struggles in Spain. All of this eventually led by the summer of uh, 1936, to the suspensions or the expulsions of uh, Trotskyists that actually opened the eyes eventually of James Burnham and Shackman and others to the fact that Cannon and Trotsky from afar had been right, that what you needed was not a deep entry that would sort of stay in the Socialist Party forever, uh, not... an illusion that one could actually take over the Socialist Party, but instead a notion that what was required with entry was what Cannon was doing in California. Hard work, proving that Trotskyists could, you know, build revolutionary possibility. And then when ultimately this would force the hand of the Socialist Party leadership to expel the Trotskyists, which happened, that when that expulsion happened, there would be those who would follow out of the Socialist Party, uh, people who could be then recruited and won to a new organization of Trotskyists.
0: Yeah, we'll get to expulsion in a bit. But before, uh, it did not take long uh, after entry for the revolutionaries within the Socialist Party to start making enemies uh, with a 400-strong group led by Jack Altman, calling for Trotsky's expulsion in June 1937, a mere year after entry. What was it this relatively small group of organizers were doing that was so intensely rustling feathers within the party and whose feathers in particular were being rustled?
1: Well, um, you know, there, there's, there were a number of leaders of this militant faction, and some of them became associated with a group called the clarity group in the sort of winter of 1937 and uh they were constantly kind of maneuvering with the with the trotskyists to try to you know get them to be involved in the socialist party but on a limited and limiting basis and canon was having none of that um and uh um eventually and i think i said 1936 expulsions it was you're right it was the summer of 1937 when these these expulsions came about um, and you know what the expulsions turned on was essentially the trotskyist insistence that issues like spain and the moscow trials be discussed be publicly addressed and that positions be taken. Uh, the militant group within the Socialist Party led by Jack Altman, but you know encompassing any number of others and having you know, roots in you know, Wisconsin and elsewhere, Massachusetts, um, these people did not want these kinds of discussions. They wanted to paper over the problems that were associated with the Communist Party and that were coming to the fore around the Moscow Trials and around um, uh, uh, and around uh, the you know the the issue of the Spanish Revolution. And as they tried to muzzle the Trotskyists, canon, Rightly saw that what the what needed to be done was not accepting any muzzling, but in fact fighting back openly and publicly. Again, to show elements within the Socialist Party ranks who were genuinely interested in revolutionary politics that there was an alternative, and that stifling discussion was not the way forward. So Cannon pushed for a uh, a, a factional. Uh, paper, the Socialist Appeal, which was edited by a left-wing Socialist Party member in Chicago, Albert Goldman, to continue to publish and to hammer away at the leadership uh, of the uh, um, of, of of the Socialist Party, not just the militants, but also Norman Thomas, who was increasingly, you know, uh, hostile to the to the Trotskyists. He'd made a trip to Russia. Uh, in the mid '30s, he came back increasingly uh, unwilling to sort of broach uh, much of the Trotskyists, uh, you know, call for open discussion. Um, and uh, as Cannon and company refused to sort of knuckle under, uh, this is when the expulsions kind of, you know, unfolded in the in the, in the, in the summer of 1937. And by the fall of 1937, uh, Cannon and the Socialist Appeal newspaper that they were putting out were calling for uh, a conference of the left wing of the Socialist Party to be held in, uh, um, in, in Chicago. And that conference uh, essentially morphed into uh, the creation of the Socialist Workers Party, uh, the exit of the Trotskyists from the, from the Socialist Party and the uh, creation of the Socialist Workers Party in, uh, you know, 1st of January
0: 1938. Yeah, so while expulsion wouldn't be immediate, it would eventually happen in what Shackman would describe as a rather unceremonious mock trial. This move wasn't universally accepted within the party ranks, though, especially among the youth. Meanwhile, Trotskyists did have substantial support in various local sections, leading to various state socialist party charters being revoked. The result was the Socialist Party itself, in an attempt to rid itself of an unwanted tendency, performed a rather intense self-mutilation. Could you describe what happened here and the status of the party when all was said and done?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, in their desire to maintain uh, their strict control to limit uh, the uh, critiques that the Trotskyists uh, inside the Socialist Party could make, and in their refusal to address the, the sort of considerations that Trotskyists were putting forward. The Socialist Party in some sense sealed its own fate. Um, it, uh, it expelled a group that could have uh, both moved it to the left and engaged in spirited and energetic uh, organizing activity. It demonstrated to uh, some of its most uh, talented uh, young uh, members that it it was no longer uh, a kind of uh, venue for revolutionary activism. Um, And in combination with its with divisions that you know just sprouted, in, you know, naturally within it, around war, uh, in 1939-40, uh, the Socialist Party went into a, a, a pretty desperate tailspin. Its uh, electoral, uh, um, you know, the, the electoral vote that it could 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 uh, command in presidential elections dipped to. About a hundred thousand votes. Its members uh, declined uh, precipitously to the point that you know it probably had uh, no more than a couple of thousand members in nineteen forty. Um, so uh, while the Trotskyist interests had sort of gone into the Socialist Party in nineteen thirty-six, when there was still something left of the party, uh, and which was left, uh, by the time that they were expelled, the Socialist Party was on a downward slide from which it would never, uh, recover. And, uh, um, in some senses, uh, you know, it was the architect of its own, you know, demise in terms of, you know, how it approached. Uh, those who were raising serious questions within it.
0: Yeah, picking that up, historians have often viewed this episode with a critical eye towards the Trotskyists. And to this day, they and many other revolutionary tendencies are often seen as political spoilers who ruin healthy political movements by cultivating antagonisms and splits. You argue that this is to misunderstand the episode, that the Trotskyists were not the problem, but a mirror held up against the problem, which was a party and its leadership that was itself already rife with political antagonisms and shortcomings. The Trotskyist entry wasn't the source of the eventual eventual splits. Uh, it was simply the form it happened to take. Could you unpack this take a bit and explain the problems and popular misunderstandings of this situation?
1: Yeah, I think there is a, a, a you know, a, a sectarian uh, um, sort of caricature of Trotskyists that exists on the left and in the broader society, that they are uh, splitters and wreckers of social movements that they enter into them with the purpose of destroying them, uh, and that they are, uh, basically, a, a, a counterproductive tendency on the left. Um, and I think this the, the socialist party, uh, the history of the entry into the socialist party has been written, um, by mainstream advocates of, of the socialist party, uh, in largely in these terms. Um, I mean, it's Daniel Bell, and even a a, a far more recent uh, historian of the party, uh, Jack Ross, have basically put forward the view that um, Cannon and company and with Trotsky's kind of guidance went went into the socialist party in order to destroy it. And they the recognition is that they did a pretty good job. Um, the difficulty with this is that uh, really no, none of the Trotskyist entrists, even given their very different perspectives on how entries should be conducted, ever thought as they went in, we we're just going in to destroy it. They thought we were going in and they even thought they might, you know, Shackman and Burnham suggested that they might win over the party and take it over and become the Socialist Party. Trotsky and Cannon never thought that. Cannon, who, as I've said, did legion work in building the Socialist Party back up from almost, uh, you know, its dismal state when he, when he went into it in, in California and in the, you know, in 1936. Uh, never uh, really did anything to destroy the party in California. What he did was build it up. Uh, he won workers to it. He was very active and created a presence for the Socialist Party in the in the 1936-37 uh, strike of the you know, Siemens Union of the Pacific. Uh, he started a major newspaper. He worked with. Uh, left-wing advocates like Glenn Trimble to build the Socialist Party up and quite successful at doing that. The fact of the matter is, is is that the Trotskyists who entered, when they did go and speak about things like the Moscow trials and the uh, American Committee to Defend Leon Trotsky that John Dewey chaired, they were doing work that the Socialist Party could have and should have embraced. When they talked about what was going on in Spain and pointed you know, very clearly at the way the Communist Party was undermining the armed struggle against Franco, they were doing what socialists should have been doing. It was the Socialist Party that refused this that ultimately chose these as the grounds on which they would expel uh, members of uh, the Trotskyist, you know, interest group. Uh, the conclusion is that in doing so, it was they that were responsible for wrecking, in some senses, their own party. Uh In the end, Trotsky and Cannon and Shackman talked about how when they left the party, they had basically uh, um, played a role in doing it in. And this has been fodder for those who claim they went in to do precisely that. The fact of the matter is that, yes, As they entered the party and then were expelled from it, the Trotskyists had, in effect, achieved a situation in which a reformist party that was, in fact, incapable of leading revolutionizing workers and radicalizing students in directions that were needed if a revolutionary uh, politics was to consolidate. They had, in fact, played a role in clearing the deck of that. But it was not, they didn't go in to clear the deck of that. They went in, in some senses, to recruit people to revolutionary politics. And had they been listened to and had their entirely appropriate uh, sort of political positions been adhered to within the Socialist Party, it is quite possible that something very different would have happened. But ultimately... What happened happened because the Trotskyists were going to be expelled. The Socialist Party was a party that was to the right of them and it was going to rid them uh, uh, from its ranks. And from that point, the chips sort of fell where they where they inevitably had to fall. And in some senses, the Socialist Party uh, ceased to be the kind of player that it had once been
0: uh, in in the American past. Coming into the final chapter of the book, in the latter half of the 1930s, a new international movement was starting to coalesce around Trotskyism. And you kick off the chapter by giving us three major fronts that it had to fight on at this time. There was the exoneration of Trotsky amidst the Moscow show trials. It's exposing the betrayals of the common turn and finally learning to participate in the upsurge of organizing among industrial workers. And all these fronts were seen as being interrelated. Could you explain these fronts and the underlying task, the new international was starting to see for itself?
1: Yeah, the, uh, the, you know, with the expulsion from the socialist party in, 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 and, and with the formation of the uh, Socialist Workers' Party in 1938. Uh, there was the appetite uh, increasing that Trotsky had been trying to cultivate and develop uh, for a couple of years of the necessity of forming a new international, the Fourth International, which would be separate from the Comintern uh, um, uh, orchestrated Third International, and that would, and that would keep alive... Uh, in an era of war and capitalist crisis, uh, the politics of uh, you know revolutionary internationalism. Um, this uh, 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 effort of this of this new international uh, had really been spearheaded always by the failures of the Communist Party and the, and the, Comin- the Comintern and its, and its Communist parties in various national sections. Um, one sort of highlight of this was uh, really the uh, uh, revelations that, that came out of the Moscow trials of the extent to which an ongoing Stalinization uh, was uh, leading to. I mean, the, the Moscow trials of the ni- of the of the mid 1930s, mid to late 1930s, uh, really exposed the extent to which uh, the Stalinization of the Comintern had now gone so far that it was impossible to conceive of this as a revolutionary, um, uh, as as the center of a revolutionary uh, organization. Virtually the entire Bolshevik, old Bolshevik leadership that had basically made the Russian Revolution was uh, brought uh, to an end with the with the, with the trials and the uh, um, uh, repression of of uh, the nineteen thirties. Uh, leading communists were and Bolsheviks were uh, required to recant, uh, issue public confessions that they had been, you know, part of a Trotskyite. Uh, sort of fifth column, working with capitalism and fascism to undermine uh, the Russian Revolution. None of these allegations uh, were true. Trotsky was vilified as the leading edge of this. Uh, He faced, you know, slander of really a a kind of unprecedented kind. And he had uh, struggled to create, help to create, a uh a uh, uh <coughs> excuse me a uh a, a tribunal that would uh look closely at the allegations and evidence of his uh, um uh of his of uh, the charges that moscow was uh, laying against him uh that was eventually put together by the American uh, Trotskyists, working largely within the Socialist Party, but with very little help from it. Uh, They established and developed an American committee for the defense of Leon Trotsky, Um, uh, sort of uh, brought in John Dewey, a liberal philosopher, uh, with a well-developed reputation as being a a kind of Democrat and uh, uh, an advocate of fair play uh, and he chaired a committee, which you know had had its tribunal in Mexico City, in near Mexico City, where Trotsky was now living, and hearing days of testimony from Trotsky. Um, this again uh, drew uh, a number of people to uh, the possibility of a new Trotskyist movement, uh, the Fourth International, um, as did you know the position the Trotskyists took on exposing uh, communist uh, subterfuge and activities in undermining uh, revolutionary activity in Spain. Um, And so with this, uh, and with Cannon being a leading figure in the American movement, uh, he went to, Trotsky sort of orchestrated a trip by Cannon uh, to Europe, where he tried to knit together Uh, fragmented and fractured Trotskyist movement in Britain and uh, to lay the groundwork where uh, uh, the possible coming together of Trotskyists in Europe, which did happen, uh, but not uh, entirely seamlessly. um, in uh, I believe in the summer of 1938, when the uh, Fourth International was formed and the world saw the sort of realization of a new Uh, international Trotskyist uh, revolutionary politics and possibility.
0: Yeah, so it's at this point uh, that Trotsky himself comes to be a major character in your narrative, as this chapter will heavily focus on his time in Mexico. Before getting to that, could you give us a synopsis of his time leading up to that? How was it that he ended up eventually finding asylum so far from home?
1: Well,, yeah, he was he was, of course, uh, um, uh, driven out of positions of influence within the Stalinizing communist uh, party and the Comintern in Russia inside Russia in the late 1920s. Um, he was banished to Siberia. And then from there he was driven into exile and he went first to uh, um, uh, Turkey. He tried to secure uh, um, uh, uh, sort of asylum uh, in uh, first France and then in Norway. Uh, he described his life uh, in his autobiography, My Life, as as traversing a planet without a visa. He had no citizenship. Uh, most places were reluctant uh, in the 1930s, most countries reluctant in the 1930s to grant him uh Asylum uh, for fear that they would alienate the Soviet Union and Stalin. Uh, he was eventually uh, um, brought eventually traveled from Norway um, to Mexico, where he was given uh, um, uh, you know asylum. Uh, this was engineered and orchestrated by figures in the American. Uh, Trotskyist movement like Max Shackman. Uh and it was aided uh, in Mexico by figures like uh, Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo who gravitated from kind of Trotskyism to Stalinism and back to um, Stalinism uh, in, in, the, in, in the late 1930s um, so he, he, he led a, a difficult uh, and uh, in some sense tortured uh, existence uh, in the 1930s, uh, a daughter committed suicide. A son was uh, um, died in a hospital in Paris under uh, dubious circumstances that many have thought related to the fact that it was the, the hospital was in effect uh, one in which uh, a number of Soviet uh, doctors, uh, Soviet aligned doctors practiced. Um, so, uh, Trotsky's life in the 1930s was one of uh, being basically driven from pillar to post, seeking to build a movement of opposition to the, you know, to the Stalinist degeneration of the revolution that he both loved and had helped uh, so much bring into being. Uh, and no uh, capitalist countries, with the exception of Mexico, would uh, grant him Uh, So much as uh, uh, any kind of safe haven, Um, a a struggle and one that ultimately ended, of course, um, with his assassination uh, at the hand of, uh, you know, a Stalinist agent in 1940.
0: Yeah, so... Picking up uh, something you just alluded to, in late 1936, the American Committee for the Defense of Leon Trotsky was formed and immediately kicked off debate with condemnations coming from Moscow and some cautious support coming from many Americans who were starting to grow suspicious of Stalinism. This opened the way for Trotskyists to start agitating around the issue arousing both financial and vocal support from a few key writers and intellectuals. Could you tell us about the formation of this body and the broader response to it?
1: Trotsky was pushing from the mid-1930s for precisely this kind of uh, um, uh, tribunal to exonerate him from the slanderous charges that were sort of coming out of the Moscow trials. Um, originally, he had thought that Europe would be the place where this would be best uh, conducted, but he found that the Trotskyists in France and elsewhere were uh, fractured, fragmented, and ineffective in putting together uh, a committee for, for his defense. And It fell on the uh, American Trotskyists, um, particularly a figure in New York named George Novak, um, who had been recruited to Trotskyism from a left-wing Jewish uh, group, the Menorah group. Um, Novak uh, played a, a decisive role in getting the American Committee for the Defense of Leon Trotsky off the ground. Um, some uh, American Workers' Party figures, particularly uh, Sidney Hook, who did not end up joining the communists, uh, joining the Trotskyists in the in the fusion uh, played a role in introducing uh, Cannon and other Trotskyists to his mentor, a philosopher, a uh, liberal philosopher John Dewey, who was uh, at that point reluctant to become involved in uh, um, this uh, tribunal de- for de- the defense of Trotsky, although he recognized the uh, um, the the uh, sort of uh, um, really outrageousness of the uh, um, Stalinist claims about Trotsky's collusion with capitalism and and with Hitler. Uh, But Dewey, um, not unlike the Communist Party recruiting uh, people to Cannon's cause in 1929, Dewey was in fact ultimately convinced to join uh, in this endeavor of an American committee for the defense of Leon Trotsky um, through uh, the communist parties of America's threats to him and to his son who actually worked with trade on trade issues with uh, the Soviet Union. Dewey was threatened that if he actually engaged in this kind of tribunal, looking at, uh, Trotsky, the evidence uh, around Trotsky's guilt or innocence, um, that his, he, his books would no longer be, uh, distributed in the Soviet Union and he would no longer be welcome to travel there. And this convinced him, a uh, good liberal that he was, that he had to undertake, uh, the cause. He went in not knowing, uh, whether he would find out, uh, you know, you know, exactly what, uh, had happened or not, and he was uh, open to the possibility that Trotsky may have been uh, guilty of some of the charges. But in the end, uh, the evidence that Trotsky presented and the testimony that Trotsky provided uh, in Mexico convinced him and others that the charges uh, emanating from the Moscow trials were entirely unfounded and represented uh, a sort of uh, um a slanderous attack that was as untruthful as it was unwarranted
0: yeah so hearings for this trial began in april 1937 trotsky testified across 13 sessions over the course of eight days only receiving a short reprieve when his secretary Jan Frankel testified for a session. In addition to questions on his life and involvement with revolutionary politics, he was also asked about theoretical questions on revolution, dictatorship of the proletariat, and bureaucratization. Could you give us a quick synopsis of these hearings? Yeah, well, Trotsky testified in you know at length and
1: uh, incredibly effectively uh And proved uh, through uh, documented evidence, uh, affidavits and the like, that he could not have committed the crimes that he was um, uh, alleged to have uh, um, been involved in. Um, you know, And so uh, he answered questions uh, truthfully about, All manner of issues relevant to revolutionary communism, uh, including the fact that violence might be necessary uh, to overthrow an oppressive order. Um, But what he did most effectively was refute the allegations that he could have engaged in the kinds of uh, conspiratorial activities uh, that the Moscow trials were constantly insisting and asserting uh, he'd been involved in. Um, and uh, not only did he manage to convince people like Dewey that he was innocent of all these allegations, Dewey came to the conclusion that uh, the the kind of system that had uh, um, perpetuated the lies and slanders against Trotsky was capable of moving in the United States in similar kinds of directions, if need be, um, and he alluded to how this might affect the labor movement and, you know, other progressive causes. Um, so uh, the you know the testimony of of, uh, um, of Trotsky and then the way that Dewey also conducted hearings in New York and where. Similar hearings did take place in a more limited fashion in, in Paris, addressing European questions. Convinced virtually everyone on the uh, um, committee, all of whom were recruited to it, uh, while you know, as as basically non-Trotskyist uh, members, uh, Cannon, Shackman, and others, Novak were convinced that it was important to involve people who could not be compromised with the uh, um, sort of insistence that their positions were already established, their minds were already made up. And Dewey was simply uh, the most uh, illustrious figurehead of that kind of process. Uh, These were neutral people, which caused some problems for the Trotskyists because they wanted to push for more than some of these neutral liberal types were willing to uh, um deliver. And Dewey himself, while he had great regard and respect for Trotsky through his testimony, on, nonetheless engaged in later, you know, slightly later debates and discussions with Trotsky and in which he he sort of contrasted revolutionary communists and liberals with him coming down on the side of, you know, how liberals would function. Uh, so it's 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 not to say that Dewey's insistence that Trotsky was innocent of the, the allegations. Of the Moscow trials made him align with uh, Trotsky and revolutionary politics. Quite the contrary, he did not. But for that reason, he was the more effective voice of uh, defense of Trotsky uh, in the sense that you know he could not be seen to be partisan and with uh, his allegiance already determined.
0: Yeah, after the hearings, the committee went to work uh, working through the testimonies as well as the archives Trotsky opened up to them, including many documents and correspondence. Uh, so as you said, Dewey himself got along fairly well with Trotsky, and the two seemed to have a mutual respect, uh, even as Dewey would never be converted to revolutionary politics. In spite of this, his commitment to liberty and fairness had him eventually lead the committee in defending Trotsky against the charges that had been leveled against him, with statements and documents being revealed throughout 1937 and 38. These trials would also stand in stark contrast to the ones happening in Moscow, which no doubt highlighted the significance of each of them all the more. So could you tell us about the major conclusions that were reached and their effect on broader public consciousness at the time outside of the courthouse?
1: Yeah. Um, well, Trotsky uh, um pressed his uh, comrades in the, in, in, the movement in the United States to publicize extensively, um, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, his exoneration. And he did this, uh, he wrote a pamphlet about this, which was circulated on a mass level. Um, he, uh, gave a, uh, an address that was supposed to be broadcast, uh, um, uh, over the over, over the airwaves as a radio address, um, to a huge gathering, uh, at Maple Leaf at, 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 uh, Madison square gardens. And, uh, he pushed for, uh, you know, the publication, which, uh, was done of the hearings of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Dewey, uh, commission had, had conducted, um, And, you know, all of this put forward the view uh, that uh, the Moscow trials had been a travesty, that there was no truth to the allegations, uh, and that, uh, you know, this needed to be confronted. The problem was, is that the liberal intelligentsia, while there there were some that gravitated towards uh, the realization that the that what was going on with the Communist Party and the Comintern and these allegations was abhorrent. There were just as many who, who still clung to the you know to the view that the Soviet Union needed to be defended at all costs. Um, that uh, they should stay away from discussions of these the issue of the Moscow trials. And so, uh, you know, liberal publications like the Nation, uh, for instance, did not. Really, fully embrace, uh, um, you know, the, the Dewey commission's findings, uh, and America remained, uh, um, highly divided in its left liberal, you know, orientation. There was indeed those in, those intellectuals and, 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 and elements of progressive movements who saw the truth, uh, being revealed in, uh, in this, uh, you know, in, in, in the American Trotskyist building of this, uh, you know, defense committee for Leon Trotsky. But there were many, many more who remained wedded to uh, the Soviet Union. And remember, the Soviet Union was uh, to become an ally in the struggle against fascism uh, um, in, in World War II. Um, so it was a very, uh, it was a mixed bag, it was a mixed bag.
0: In the background of all this were developments in Spain with a civil war breaking out. So while the left was generally supportive and felt fighting was a valid course of action, there were some intense debates over Moscow's role in the conflict as Kenan and others felt it was misleading many on the front lines. Could you tell us about some of these debates?
1: Well, um, with the, you know, uh, war in Spain against Franco and the uh, struggle of many progressive uh, peoples uh, for uh, the sort of liberation of the Spanish people from the tyranny of, of, of Franco. Uh, it was a very complicated situation because the Soviet Union was one of the few nations of the world that was unambiguous in its support of uh, you know the republican side and the struggle against franco um, and so many people thought the soviet union was you know doing very good work in this in this in this in this, in the, in, the, in, the, in the in the struggle in spain um, the american communist party sent over uh, you know, uh, battalions to, to, to fight there. Um, what Trotskyists and others knew was that the struggle in Spain was being conducted on a number of levels. And the Soviet Union's uh, role was to essentially control the struggle against Franco and make itself the Communist International, uh, the, the sort of center of the military confrontation. Those other elements, whether they be Trotskyist inflected in the Andreas Nen led movement, the PUM, or anarchists who were playing a you know a, a decisive role in the military confrontation against Franco um they were being sabotaged Nin was actually tortured uh, by Stalinist uh, uh, agents uh, in, the, in the in the Soviet pardon me in Spain uh, and eventually killed when he when when uh, he wouldn't uh, confess to being a, an agent of Trotsky uh, all of this is laid out I think very well in a in a film by Uh, Ken Loach called Land and Freedom, um, the the, the despicable role of the Communist Party in in the Spanish struggle. Uh, But a lot of this was not realized and not really grasped in places like the United States. Uh, And it was difficult for the Trotskyists to win over and convince people of the nefarious role of the communist uh, international in the Spanish struggle. Um, and again, figures in the Socialist Party, leading figures, were playing a role in, you know, encountering this by actually extolling, uh, you know, the virtues of, of, uh, of the common turn in, in Spain. And, and the tragedies that unfolded in Barcelona and elsewhere were suppressed and knowledge of them uh, pushed to the background.
0: Turning back to canon and circling back to something we were talking about at it- A couple chapters ago, he was at this time doing a lot of work with maritime workers on the Pacific Coast, working with, among others, Harry Lundberg and members of the Sailors Union of the Pacific. As he often would, Cannon would struggle to organize against more conservative leadership, but managed to have some success sinking roots uh, and building trust among the rank and file. Could you tell us a bit about the work Cannon did in California at the time?
1: Yeah, the 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 work he did with the uh, Sailors Union of the Pacific was facilitated by the fact that Lindenberg, who had been uh, a member of the Industrial Workers of the World in the nineteen twenties and came from, I think, Sweden, uh, really had been at loggerheads with Harry Bridges and the communists who had been organizing uh, longshoremen on the West Coast, um, and Lindenberg saw the role of the Communist Party in organizing uh, um, uh, uh, sort of seafaring workers and dock workers uh, in ways that limited their class struggle uh, um, uh, um, potential in the era of the popular front when the Communist Party was essentially aligning with Roosevelt as a progressive You know, uh, bourgeois element. So Lindenberg was happy to have uh, Cannon's help and support, and in fact uh, opened up uh, Sailors' Union of the Pacific halls to his newspaper, uh, Labor Action, which Cannon edited, established, and edited in these years. And that uh, newspaper became a major voice of uh, not only the strike and how it. Was enfolding and doing it and doing everything it could to promote the strike and uh, um, push it forward, but it also became a a venue for uh, um, revelations about what the Communist Party was doing and how it was trying to uh, basically uh, uh, overtake Lindenberg's leadership and structure the Sailors Union of the Pacific and certain, you know, uh, Roosevelt friendly ways. Um, so, uh, um, you know, again, Canon's work as a Trotskyist was to build the possibilities of trade unionism on the Pacific waterfront to advance the cause cause and interests of the workers, uh, and to expose, uh, the role of the communist party, um, which was often one of actually, uh, um, doing all that it could to dampen uh, uh, class struggle militancy in the era of the popular front and the attraction to Roosevelt and a kind of liberal, seemingly pro-labor administration.
0: Late in the evening of November 17, 1937, Pat Corcoran, an organizer with the Teamsters in Minneapolis, was murdered in his driveway by some unknown assailants. While Corcoran was not himself a Trotskyist, Minneapolis was obviously a Trotskyist stronghold, and his murder kicked up a flurry of accusations from various factions, both locally and nationally, made worse by the inability to track down his killers. Could you tell us about what happened here and the long series of debates and accusations that played out in response to Corcoran's murder?
1: Yeah, Corcoran was one of the, uh, um, was originally a figure aligned with Dan Tobin. And his he was a conservative, I believe, Catholic uh, trade union leader uh, in Minneapolis who worked in the trucking sector. Um, as the Minneapolis uh Teamsters Union Local established its hegemony on the trade union movement uh, in Minneapolis in the aftermath of the successful 1934 strikes. Uh, The Dunn brothers and Farrell Dobbs and other Trotskyists worked to align themselves with uh, trade union leaders who were not uh, sympathetic to their Trotskyism, but who seemed to be uh, honest in their desire to advance the interests of workers in the trucking sector. And Corcoran ended up through a complicated set of developments to be one of those trade union leaders. Um, he had, uh, in fact, um, aligned with the Trotskyists ultimately in trying in getting rid of some uh, gangster type elements that Dan Tobin's uh, leadership had uh, basically brought into uh, the Teamsters local, um, he was shot down in 1937 in his driveway, uh, and no one to this day uh, knows who definitively who the killers uh, or killer what was or were, um, but. Uh, Upon his killing, uh, the Communist Party, you know, alleged that this was a consequence of the gangster-ridden and, uh, um, uh, um, and Trotskyist-controlled Teamsters Local. Uh, this was the kind of thing that Dewey had suggested uh, the American Communist Party might do. It was an equivalent of the Moscow trials. It was totally untrue. It was slanderous. It was an attack that was meant to uh, basically, uh, you know, punch the, uh, the, the sort of uh, credibility of the Trotskyist leadership that the communists wanted to depose. Um, Cannon and company uh, insisted that this, of course, was uh, a false representation, and that rather than uh, attributing the death uh, of a trade union leader to other trade unionists, um, it would be, it was more appropriate to look at uh, um, the possibility that this trade union leader had been killed by, uh, um, you know, gangsters who were uh, uh, aligned more with the bosses than with the trade unions. Uh, and they, uh, they again drew a kind of class line in how they, uh, you know, sort of pushed the notion of who killed, uh, Pat Corcoran and why. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it was a reflection of just really how, uh, Extreme a position the Communist Party was willing to take to besmirch the reputation of those Trotskyists who'd done so much to build class struggle unionism in Minneapolis.
0: The book ends with a turn towards auto workers in the Midwest, part of Cannon's desire to turn towards the upsurge of organizing among industrialized workers. A key player in this part of the story for you is Bert Cotran a young organizer who would lead the Trotskyists into a delicate dance with the UAW. Could you tell us about these attempts by Trotskyists to get involved in this sector?
1: Yeah, well, over the course of the late 1930s, uh, a number of uh, canon canon affiliated organizers uh, were basically uh, um, working to do their best to be involved in Trade union activity, uh, and two of these who were very important were George Clark, uh, who ended up working in the national office and editing, uh, you know, newspapers for Trotskyists, and Burke Cochran, who was uh, a, a, a talented uh, um, uh, Trotskyist figure in the in the uh, in the auto sector, and he had worked in um, uh, uh, various plants in Ohio. And he managed to uh, um, become involved in some of the uh, um, leading struggles of the time. He was he played a role in various wildcat strikes of advising workers in Michigan, uh, kind of strikes that were sort of prefaces to the Flint sit-down strike in 1937. Um, he was hired by. Uh, um, Homer Martin, who was heading the uh, UAW uh, in the late 1930s to work out of Detroit and and play a role in uh, organizing uh, and propagandizing among unemployed auto workers. Um, At the time, Martin was dealing with a fractured leadership of the UAW in which the Communist Party had a, a significant influence. And Martin, uh, who was by no means a leftist, he was a reactionary and a bit of a charlatan, um, took on the Trotsky, a Trotskyist like uh, Cochrane in order to beat back or beat down uh, his his more powerful uh, left-wing, uh, uh, seemingly left-wing uh, critics in the Communist Party. Um, Cochrane played a role in advising uh, Homer Martin, and uh, had a, an influence in, in putting together uh, a 20 point program for auto workers advances in the 1930s that contained some good things that uh, Cochrane had pushed, but that retained uh, much that you know any Trotskyist movement would have opposed. Um, But there was a a sense in which Trotskyists, even with very limited numbers, uh, could exercise an influence because of the sort of Byzantine politics of, uh, you know, social democratic, communist and more conservative uh, um, leaderships that kind of uh, um, uh, clashed in the upper echelons of of the UAW in the late 1930s. It was simply a reflection of the fact that Trotskys had some very talented people on the ground who'd spent some time in the in, in the in the unions and unions like the UAW and that uh, they thought the whole this the, 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 the struggle in these unions was vital to the uh, uh, sort of revolutionary movement and were willing to spend time energy and personnel
0: in um, uh, in pursuing it In the conclusion of the book, you wrap up the story with a couple key moments. First was a December 1937 convention by the Socialist Party's dissident left wing, attended by over 100 delegates in Chicago, in which the Socialist Party's tendency towards a stagnant bureaucratization was discussed, as well as possibilities for a new revolutionary party to emerge. Could you tell us a bit about this convention? What were the primary questions on the table, and what did the organization coming out of this convention look like in terms of composition and political orientation?
1: Well, it was the convention was convened as a kind of gathering of left-wing dissidents within the Socialist Party, a number of whom had already been uh, expelled. Others were expected to be given them heave ho! Uh, in short order, um, in some senses, uh, it, it may have been convened as a left-wing convention, uh, but it quickly morphed into the, you know, into a into a founding convention of, you know, lead of, of a new organization, the Socialist Workers Party, which was established on first uh, of, of of January nineteen thirty-eight the politics of this group were, uh, the politics of the Trotskyist movement of the time. Uh, it was at this point, Trotsky had already announced that although it was not yet formed, that he thought the, uh, uh, founding of a fourth international should be, uh, on the agenda. Um, and, uh, the, the convention of the, of the new, Uh, organization. It was composed of basically of, uh, the, the, the group that, uh, had been around Canon, uh, from, uh, the days of the founding of the communist league of America. Um, those recruits to, uh, that organization that had come about through the fusion with the American workers party, uh, in 19, uh, um, you know, in 19, uh, 35. Uh, and, uh, those newcomers, uh, who had been won over from the socialist party, uh, young, uh, uh, radicalized, uh, elements, many of them, um, students or, or young workers and a number of workers who had been won to the cause through, uh, Seeing what how Cannon and others function uh, in the Socialist Party, so there was really a th- three-part component to this to this new party, and it would be uh, the largest and most uh, effective and most tried and experienced uh, group uh, in the formation of the Fourth International
0: that took place in the summer of 1938. In September 1938, uh, Cannon and many others would travel to Europe to meet, forming a new Trotskyist International. One thing you emphasize here is that Trotsky, over the last decade, had seen American Trotskyism emerge as one of the most important pillars of the movement and had come to see Cannon as one of the most important figures. Could you explain Trotsky's view here and what he saw in Cannon and the movement he had led and the role he envisioned for it in this new international context.
1: Yeah, Trotsky had dealt over the course of the 1930s with um, all kinds of disappointments in terms of, uh, you know, groups and uh, individuals who gravitated seemingly towards Trotskyism and the international left opposition, but that who proved incapable of building organizations, ties to uh, the working class and the development of, and 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 sustaining of a, a politics of revolutionary possibility. What he saw in Canon was someone who had that uh, capacity, to lead American workers in revolutionary struggle, had his finger on the pulse of the class struggles and class formations of his own, you know, national uh, situ- circumstance, and who uh, had an instinctual regard for the and 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 sort of adherence to the principles of revolutionary, you know, communism. Uh, n- Trotsky's, the document that Trotsky created as the founding statement of the uh, new Fourth International, the transitional program, as it's often uh, called, had in fact been hammered out because of discussions that Trotsky had had with Cannon, uh, Rose Karstner, Max Shackman, and other uh, leaders of the revolutionary American Trotskyist movement in Mexico City, uh, in 19, uh, um, 30. And, and he was, I think he understood that of all of the p- figures in the international movement that he had contact with, Cannon, while not without flaws, was probably the most, uh, accomplished and, uh, uh, reliable, uh, of leaders of the revolutionary left, uh, that, you know, adhered to, um, Trotsky's, uh, conception of, you know, what a new movement should look like. Um, so he, he relied on Cannon. He regarded him as, uh, you know, one of the few people in the movement whom he could, uh, he had a kind of, you know, Uh, intrinsic trust in, uh, which mattered a lot to Trotsky, and that he would uh, see in Cannon, really, the kind of foundational leader necessary to the building of of a new international.
0: So this massive book and this very long conversation began with the expulsion of Cannon and a few key comrades from their political home on the streets with next to nothing. By the end of the book, Cannon and Company remained dissidents on the margins in certain respects, but had also earned themselves places in both national and international class struggles. So in closing, I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts on this decade of Cannon's life, on its significance for the history of both the labor movement and revolutionary movements. Are there any key lessons you see in this decade that You'd like to see picked up, reanimated, and deployed today?
1: Yeah, well, I think today uh, the revolutionary left is arguably uh, in worse shape than it has been in its you know its entire history. Uh, in some senses, um, we've lost so much ground, uh, and it is and found it very difficult to build back. This can create a certain despair, uh, disillusionment. I think what the history of canon and the emergence of Trotskyism in the United States over the course of the 1930s shows is what a small group with a principled and steeled understanding of what it is necessary to develop in terms of Communist practice, strategy, and principles. What can be accomplished if that small group, seemingly marginal, battling forces that are, you know, considerably greater than it in terms of its, their strengths and their presence, what that kind of a group can accomplish? If you look at what uh, Cannon and others did over the course of the 1930s, it was amazing uh, for a small group in, many, in the Minneapolis, you know, coal yards to develop and, and push uh, the approach that they did, winning. Uh, You know, collective bargaining rights for, in the end, 7,000 workers when at the beginning of their struggle, barely 150 had such rights is an amazing accomplishment. Um, To have uh, created the organization that was the Socialist Workers' Party with its roughly 1,500 members in 19... uh, Thirty-eight, when it, the you know, the group started with a nucleus of barely, uh, you know, a couple of dozen in 1928-29. It was an amazing accomplishment. Um, and this group, which Cannon led, put itself on the map globally, in terms of uh, um, not just in the United States, but globally, internationally, in terms of Uh, creating a fighting socialist force that the state quite frankly recognized as a threat and would move against decisively in in the 1940s. Um, So we tend to think that we can't accomplish much because our numbers are too small, we're too marginal, we're too insignificant. But if one has a protracted view, as these Trotskyists did, and one is in it for the long haul, And one is willing to fight on the basis of, you know, principles that need to be uh, defended and extended. Uh, Much can be accomplished that advances uh, workers' interests on a day-to-day basis, but also builds the possibility of a revolutionary organization that can actually, in some future, contests lead to the transformation of society um, that's really why I wrote this book on Canon uh, because I believe that to be true and that that book is there for future generations of revolutionaries to look to not to reproduce because you can never reproduce the history exactly but as you know a guideline and a um, and an and a and a and an inspiration as to what can be accomplished.
0: Yeah, that's a great note to end on. So that brings us through the book and all my questions. So Brian Palmer, thank you so much for coming on and being so generous with your time talking about it.
1: Well, thank you for doing it. It's it's been a it's been a long discussion, but uh, and my voice is going now. But uh, it, <laughs> it's it's been it's been nice. So thank you very much for putting the work into this.